You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season six, episode 15, the season finale. Our souls are bleary, seared, smeared, writes New York Times bestselling author John Eldridge in his new book, Get Your Life Back. The world may be harsh, he says, but God is gentle. He knows what your life is like. You can get your life back. You can live freely and lightly. In Get Your Life Back, John examines the breakneck pace at which we force our souls to exist, a pace that far exceeds God's original design. John argues that a constant absorption of others' worries through social media, paired with our own burdens and stresses, has left people overwhelmed and weary. In this season finale episode, I talk with John about the simple yet profound spiritual disciplines that can heal our souls and nourish the creative spirit inside of us. This is my interview with author, counselor, and teacher, John Eldridge. John, it's a real honor to have you on Makers and Mystics today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Oh yeah, no, the honor's mine. Love <laughs> love this and love the chance to have a conversation. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk about this new book that you have coming out because I know for many of us in our community, we've read so many of your books over the years, but this one that you have coming out is called Get Your Life Back, Everyday Practices for a World Gone Mad. Tell me some about this book. Well, especially, especially for your audience of, you know, the creative and the artist and and uh, maybe a little bit of the mystical, the world is nuts. Like, we are way too plugged in, and it's asking us to run at a pace that human beings don't get to be human beings anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was noticing this, like, I had a couple of experiences that, that actually started me into this quest. One was, I love to read, and I couldn't read anymore. Like, I just found myself not able to really give things my attention. Mm -hmm. And I read the uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, runner-up, How the Internet's Changing Our Brains, the Mm -hmm. Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, How Mm -hmm. the Internet's Changing Our Brains. And he was reporting that even academics and, and like, book, really book people were admitting the same thing. Like, they couldn't pay attention to anything longer than, like, a blog post. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that. I'm like, whoa, something's happening to my humanity. And then the other uh, experience was very personal. We have little grandchildren now, uh, little ones. They're like three and two and one. And I adore them. I love when I get to see them. But I noticed that I could only be present to them for about five minutes till I wanted to like check my phone, look at my email, you know, get online. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, it's a question of humanity. What, what is this hour and this nuts world, what is it doing to our humanity? Mm-hmm. And, and then that kind of set me on a sort of a two-year quest. Really, um, I, had no, I, I had no intention of writing this I just needed I just needed my own humanity back, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, in the book you 
offer five daily habits to help minimize this type of distraction and also to bring healing to your soul. And and the first one that you talk about is the one minute pause. Tell me some about what this one minute pause is. Yeah. Yeah. Partly because you got to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Like you can't, you know, as much as most of us and most of your listeners would love to like retire to a monastic life or <laughs> move to the South Pacific or, you know, it's not going to happen. We got jobs, we got real worlds. And, and so I knew for myself, I have a full life, just like everybody else. I got bills to pay and, you know, trash to take out. And I, I knew that I had to find some things that I could do in my day. Mm-hmm. And so it really began with a simple practice of I realized I never stopped. It, it, it was get up in the morning and go. And, and it was, you know, straight to texting. And, and then, you know, on my commute, I would listen to podcasts and then get into work. And it was email, 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 conversation, meeting, phone call, boom, boom, boom. You know, um, just the practice of learning to pause and stop, and I mean literally for 60 seconds, like it's doable, you know, it, it's not 30 minutes of meditation, it's 60 seconds. There's some brain research that says it's uh, it actually resets your brain and allows you to be more present which um, to the next thing, and that's what I was really looking for. I, I wanted that sense of being able to be present. You know, when someone's talking to me, I want to really be present to them, and when I'm reading something, I want to be present to it. And you know, when I'm enjoying my life and, you know, taking a bike ride or something, I want to be present to it. So I implemented this thing called the one minute pause. And, you know, I set my phone to, you know, remind me at 10 o'clock and two o'clock every day, just stop, John, just pause and breathe and let it all go. Mm-hmm. And and here's a fun thing. This actually became, so I started sharing it with my friends and with our team, and now at 10 and 2 every day in our offices, monastery bells ring out. <laughs> and and it's an, it's an interruption. Like, you might be in a meeting, you might be on a phone call, um, but everybody knows, stop. 60 seconds, let it go. Mm-hmm. Like, just let it all go. And, like, recenter, find yourself again, find God, like, get your head back. And it's been... It's been it's it's amazing that something so simple could be so transformative, but it's been huge. It reminds me you talked early in your book about some of the practices of the third and fourth century desert fathers. And if I could quote the book, I believe you said the desert fathers of the third and fourth century were a courageous ragtag group followers of Jesus who fled the madness of their world to seek a life of beauty and simplicity with God in the silent desert, for they saw the world as a shipwreck from which every man has to swim for their life. And then you went on to talk about how they had no cell phones, no internet, no media, no automobile, none of these things. And so I love this 60-second pause because it brings some of that monastic wisdom into the context of our modern day. Yeah, it really does. It's got to be doable. If it's not, do- and sustainable, that's the whole thing. It's got to be accessible and sustainable. If it's, you know, if you set the bar too high and say, I really need, you know, 30 minutes of silence every day, that would be amazing. It would do you great good. I, I know a few people mm-hmm. who can pull that off, and I respect them. But most of us, we, we just, you know, we don't want to set a bar that we can't sustain. Mm-hmm. So here's a fun piece. We actually built an app. 
because um, I knew people are living on their smartphones, mm-hmm. right? And and so we have an app called the One Minute Pause. It's free. People can find it for iPhone and Android. And what it does is it guides you with music and reflection. It guides you through a 60-second pause and a three-minute pause if you want. There's a five-minute and there's a 10-minute because you kind of grow into it. And some days you need that five because you're fried, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And some days the 60 seconds enough and it'll dial you in. And so that's just a little shout out for that. It's, it, 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 we, we can. We can grab that desert wisdom um, and bring it into a modern context. And um, it, it's very, very restorative to pause. In fact, here's a fascinating thing. The Hebrew word for Sabbath is Shabbat, and it actually doesn't mean rest. It doesn't mean worship. It literally means stop. (laughs) Just stop for a minute. Just stop. Just pause. Just let it go, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's it's super helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that alone is such a countercultural idea for us right now. And in the book as well, you talk about the emotional detriment of social media. And when you talk about Sabbath and stopping, I know that's one thing that can be so hard for us to do. But tell me some about what you see as the emotional detriment of social media. Well, let's start with the emotional benefit of it, because I, everybody's ripping on social media these days. And it's kind of that there's a lot of books coming out on, you know, um, technology fasting and minimalism and that kind of thing. So it's a good conversation, but but the, the problem with our modern world that the desert fathers you know and others didn't have we don't have community. Like you know my na- I hardly even know my neighbors. Like we don't hang out together. There isn't an evening where there's music in the street and people are grilling and you know like like really you could find even a couple hundred years ago in most communities. So just mercifully, of course, we're seeking that online. Of course, there's a longing to check in on your friends and see how they're doing, that sort of thing. So that's a good part of it. The, the, the disturbing part is, as a therapist, I, I was really alarmed to see the research that said that anxiety and depression actually rise in direct correlation with social media consumption. Mm. And I'm like, whoa, what? Like, why? We're looking for connection. We're looking for friendship and community. Why is it doing that to us? And there's a lot of reasons why, but it has to do with comparison and it has to do with envy. And, you know, people kind of put their best stuff out there. And like, look how amazing this trip was. You know, you go, wow, I didn't even get vacation this year. And so you you start feeling like your life's, you know, horrible in comparison to this wonderful world that everyone else is living out there. And it gets very personal, right? Like, oh, they just had a baby and we are struggling with infertility or, hey, look, you know, he just scored his dream job and I hate my job. So we got to be careful with social media because when we see research showing um, that, that envy and anxiety and depression increase with direct correlation to the amount of social media you consume, you just want to go, whoa, whoa, I, I think I want to monitor how much I do that. And I'm not recommending totally bailing because some of your friends are overseas. And, you know, it's just, it can be helpful. But I am recommending, we're just way too plugged in. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when we're spending, it's between four and nine hours a day on our mobile devices. Like, we are way too plugged in. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you take back a little bit of that real estate 
you can use it for the things you love. You can play some music in your house. You can enjoy making dinner. You, you know, like I want to take back some real estate so that I've got room to do the things that I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the chapters in your book is called Benevolent Detachment, and I loved that title. But in that chapter, you talked about how we've lost our sense of public moments and private moments. It seems like everything blends together now. Tell me some about that. Yeah, so this was also from the Desert Fathers. With that they, and, and the crazy thing is, like if they did not have the information of the world coming at them. They only had the information primarily of their local community with a little bit of information from more, you know, larger context. But um, you have the heartache of the world delivered to you every day, you know, via your feed or, you, you know, uh, what's being posted or how you get your news. And um, that's really brutal on the human soul. Like we really actually weren't meant, you know, I'm, my heart's breaking right now over the fires in Australia, right, mm, and the same. earthquakes in Puerto Rico, and you know it's awful. And then what's going on in the Middle East and the refugee crises—it's horrible. And and caring people need to learn the grace of at some point in your day, you have to learn to let it go. You you have to learn to not carry that because eventually it really burdens the soul. Um, and, and so I call it benevolent detachment um, because benevolent, because it's not cynicism, it's not anger, I'm not, I'm not checking out, I'm not ticked. It's something actually done in kindness. It's benevolent to me and it's benevolent to them. Mm-hmm. Um, detachment, because you actually really learn, you need to learn to pull away from everything that's trying to seize your attention mm-hmm. and seize your concern. And so, you know, I. I do, you know, the quick little NPR five-minute, you know, news update every day. And but at the end of that, I kind of let it go. Like I can, pr- I pray for it, and I pray for rain, you know, over the fires and stuff. But then I got, I gotta let it go. I can't, I can't carry the trauma of the world. And and let me add a little bit more on this because again, I don't think we realize how serious this is. When nine eleven happened. There was some research that came out afterwards that people who watched the the tragedy in New York on television experienced the same PTSD that people present on the streets did. And, and what they're beginning to understand is that simply watching traumatic events is traumatizing to the soul. And so you got to be really careful, friends, about your intake of that. I think it's responsible to be informed. I think we can pray, we can love, we can care, but then you've got to let it go. Mm-hmm. You've got to learn. So we call it benevolent detachment, and it's the primary thing I use the pause for. So when I do pause during my day, I realize I'm already spun up. <laughs> I'm already, I'm on, I'm on cortisol and adrenaline. I'm already cranked. And, and so I let it go. I use the one-minute pause, or maybe, you know, it's a couple minutes, and I just go, okay, God, I give all this back to you. Your shoulders are big. Mine are not. Like, I give the world to you, and I give this to you, and I give my mom to you, and I give my kids, and, you know, whatever it is that you're currently carrying, benevolent detachment is this wonderful experience of learning to let it go. And the beautiful thing is, like, you're 
your soul feels lighter immediately. Like you'll notice the benefits of some of these practices immediately. You feel better and you feel human again. Like you can come back to your humanity. One of the things you talk about in your book that is close to my own heart and close to my own journey is the role of beauty in healing the soul, you know, and even in some of my own writings and some of my own work, you know, I've often said, in light of all of these crises taking place around the world, it would be easy for some to think that beauty was a mere luxury or that art and creativity and these things are, are peripheral to these, these crises. But I have this suspicion that it's precisely because of these crises that we also see a rise in the arts right now, even in faith communities. And yeah. so I'm curious if you could talk some about the role that you see beauty playing in our healing journeys. You and I could spend three hours now on this. It, this. This actually may be the most important thing we talk about, because for several reasons. First off, let's just make the observation that some of the most beautiful works of art and, and, and creativity in the world were produced in suffering. Um, so they're not opposed to one another. Um, but it was as a young therapist that I began to notice this. I, I was counseling a particular um, client who had just gone through a, a horrible assault and I couldn't I couldn't get to their trauma. I couldn't help them. And and then one day I noticed that um, she was wearing this um, these beautiful embroidered flowers on her denim shirt. She it was, you know, it was a lovely shirt. And and I felt God say, ask her about the flowers. And and so I took a risk and I said, hey, um, I just noticed the embroidered flowers. Can you tell me about that? And she paused. Her countenance completely changed. Her voice changed. And she smiled for a moment. And she said, oh, only beauty helps. And, and as a young counselor, I really tucked that away. And I'm like, pay attention to that. And then over the years, the reading that you know you and I have both done, the research on it. So here's a fascinating thing. Patients in hospital settings recover faster and need less pain medication if they simply have a window on nature. Isn't that fascinating? It is. Nature nature heals. Beauty heals. And and then the more that, you know, your group knows this, like the more you let this into your soul. Um and here's what I'm suggesting. This is the next step. So um you don't have to you don't have to go to the Himalayas, you don't have to get to Tahiti. You know, beauty is all around us, right? It's it's in the water drops on your windshield. It's in the city streets at night. It's it's in music. It's in the leaves of the trees. It's in the way the sunlight comes through your kitchen window in the morning. Like beauty is literally all around us. Mm-hmm. If we are moving too fast, we don't notice. We forget how important beauty is. And so here's the here's kind of the next step or the the new piece maybe for your listeners is I will stop, and I'll see the I'll see the bark on the tree. I'll hear the songbird. I'll, you know, back in the Christmas holidays, I was playing Handel's Messiah over and over and over in our house, and and because of the beauty of it was was healing my traumatized soul. And here's the next step: I receive this beauty into my soul. That's the because a lot of a lot of people will stop and look and go, oh wow, well, that's a really pretty sunrise. And then they just move on. But what I'm suggesting is you receive it. You let it in. You you soak in it. You saturate. I receive, and I literally say it out loud, I receive 
this gift into my soul. And, and because I believe in God, I, and with it, your love. Mm-hmm. And with it, your love. So I, I'm recommending that beauty actually becomes a spiritual practice for us again, that we like seek it out and linger over it and mm-hmm. receive it into your soul. Mm-hmm. Well, you made me think some of the book talks also about distraction and how to purposefully choose soul care over distraction. And it seems like that we live in such a distracted society and that's our norm that sometimes we miss the beauty that's all around us. Yeah. And not only the beauty, you miss the people around you. I mean, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say the number of times that in the morning, my wife is trying to say something to me, and I am not present to it because I'm already distracted. I've already picked up my phone. I'm already answering texts and, and emails. And um, I didn't realize the power of this until I read Stephen Crawford's book, The World Outside Your Head. And, and he said, yeah, it's technology, but let's take this a little bit larger. He said, your attention is the last piece of commodity that the world is vying for. And so, you know, I go to get gas at my local gas station. Now they have televisions on the gas pumps. And as soon as you put your credit card in, it starts playing commercials at you, <laughs> right? And, you know, billboards have now gone to, you know, the, the digital billboards and they're colorful and they change and they're distressed. Like, if you'll notice this, gang, everything in the world right now is vying for the last piece of of real estate, and it is your attention. Hmm. And that gave me, I'm like, hey, wait a second. Like, no, you can't just, you can't randomly grab my attention. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be, I want to be the agent that chooses where and when I give my attention to something. But you go through an airport, it's nuts, man. It's, <laughs> you know, the, the advertising and the media and all that. And they know they have three seconds to get you. And so it is very well done and it's powerful. And then, you know, you get on YouTube and unless, you know, you pay for the premium service, you know, you, you get the ads before you get to your video and they know they've got five seconds, you know, (laughs) for that car or that movie or whatever. So gang, the idea is this, the whole world is trying to grab your attention and take it hostage. Mm -hmm. And we want to fight back, push back against the distraction Consider your attention as one of your most precious, precious resources and say to yourself, I'm not letting just anything grab it. Mm-hmm. And, and when it starts to, okay, so I get the, you know, you get the, the clickbait and the push notifications and all that stuff. I, I, I flip my phone over, I turn it down and go, I'm not looking at that. I'm not <laughs> clicking on that. You know, my attention matters and mm-hmm. I'm not I, you know, there's the. It, I think most of the world is hostage to distraction right now, mm-hmm. and 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 again, this was back to um, Nicholas Carr's book on the internet. It literally is changing the structure of our brain, mm-hmm. so that our ability to give sustained attention to anything is really diminishing. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you can't do that to me. I am a human being, and I I refuse that. And so you just um, you make some choices to take your attention back so that you are not one of the distracted throng. We'll return to the concluding segment of our interview with John Eldridge in just a moment. 
But before we do, I wanted to personally invite you to join us at this year's annual The Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering, taking place March 20th through 22nd in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. This year's presenters include Will Reagan of United Pursuit, Cageless Birds, Scott Erickson, John Mark McMillan, and many of the guests from the Makers and Mystics podcast. Come spend a weekend investing in your creative and spiritual life. Your soul needs it. Visit the bc2020.com for details or see the show notes of this episode. Well, John, I want to ask you one more question. I, I could sit here and talk with you all day, but I want to be sensitive to your time. <laughs> uh, I can chat with you too. This is really good stuff. Yeah. Well, you actually, in the book, you quote several of some of my favorite authors. One is Elaine Scarry, who wrote the book on beauty and being just. And right. Yes. Kill the book. It is. That's a book recommendation I give to our community all the time. It's it's a staple for us. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the question I want to ask you is in light of all that you've discovered and all that you've researched and all that you're putting into practice, what are some takeaways that you would give to the creative community specifically, but then just all the listeners at large, that how we could begin to move toward getting our life back, as your book title suggests? Like, I know we've talked about the one-minute pause and we've talked about taking in beauty. Is, is there one last thing you'd like to add to these discussions? I think what I want to say is that your humanity matters because there's very little in this world right now that will reaffirm that and your choices will look strange to your friends because you're going to make choices in the direction of, I need an evening off, I need to take some Sabbath, I, I'm changing some of my media choices, I'm not available. You're going to, you're going to turn your phone off at 8 p.m. and not turn it back on until morning. You know, you're going to make some choices that make you feel odd to the world. But, but what I want, I just want to affirm to your listeners, your humanity is priceless. Jesus said, what will you give in place of your soul? Mm-hmm. Like your, your soul is, is of immestable worth. And, and all of your creativity comes out of your soul, all of your loving, your friendships, your joy, by the way, your ability to enjoy things is all at stake here. This is what's at stake. And so I I just want to say it matters. It's worth the small choices to begin to become a little odd to the world, to to get your soul back and be human again. And, And then your life, your life will begin to flourish. And then it won't be hard. I mean, these these are not hard choices. See, you feel the benefit of them right away, and you go, "Oh man, I just like this better. I, I like me better." You know, <laughs> that's great, John. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Makers and Mystics. Thanks. It's really been a pleasure to chat with you. And thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Music for this episode is provided by Glass C. A special thanks goes out to the patrons of this podcast who make these conversations possible. If you've been inspired by this or other episodes of the Makers and Mystics podcast, please consider joining our monthly supporters. For the cost of a cup of coffee to a date night at the movies, you can partner with us in creating and sustaining a greater understanding of the relationship between art, faith, and culture. We'll see you again next week with a special interview with singer-songwriter John Mark McMillan on his new album, Peopled with Dreams.